In C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of my favorite characters is Eustace Clarence Scrub, who almost deserved that name, by the way. As you read through the book, you discover that Eustace, who's, let's be honest, somewhat of a punk, actually has a pretty good excuse for being the way that he is, and that excuse is named Harold Scrub, his father. See, Harold and Alberta Scrub were very progressive people. Non-smokers, teetotalers, vegetarians, pacifists, were even told that they wore a special kind of underwear. But one of the worst things that they gave to their son, even worse than their vegetarianism and pacifism, actually comes down to the kinds of stories that they told him. See, they told Eustace all of the wrong stories. So when Eustace went out into the world and faced danger and adventure for the first time, he was ill-equipped to face the realities of the world. In part of the story, Eustace comes upon a dragon's cave, and this is what we read. Most of us know what we should expect to find in a dragon's lair, but as I said before, Eustace had read only the wrong books. They had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. That's why he was so puzzled at the surface that he was lying on. Parts of it were too prickly to be stones and too hard to be thorns, and there seemed to be a great many round, flat things, and it all clinked when he moved. There was light enough at the cave's mouth to examine it by, and of course, Eustace found it to be what any of us could have told him in advance, treasure. There were crowns, those were the prickly things, coins, rings, bracelets, ingots, cups, plates, and gems. Eustace, unlike most boys, had never thought much of treasure, but he saw at once the use it would be in this new world, which he had so foolishly stumbled into through the picture in Lucy's bedroom and at home. They don't have any tax here, he said, and you don't have to give treasure to the government. With some of this stuff, I could have a quite decent time here, perhaps in Callerman. It sounds the least phony of all these countries. I wonder how much I can carry. That bracelet now, those things in it are probably diamonds. I'll slip that on my own wrist. Too big, but not if I push it right up here above my elbow then fill my pockets with diamonds. That's easier than gold. I wonder when this infernal rain's going to let up. He got into a less uncomfortable part of the pile, where it was mostly coins, and settled down to wait. But a bad fright when once it is over, and especially a bad fright following a mountain walk, leaves you very tired. Eustace fell asleep. By the time he was sound asleep and snoring, the others had finished dinner and become seriously alarmed about him. They shouted, Eustace, Eustace, coee, till they were hoarse, and Caspian blew his horn. He's nowhere near or he'd have heard that, said Lucy with a white face. Confound the fellow, said Edmund. What on earth did he want to slink away like this for? But we must do something, said Lucy. He may have got lost or fallen into a hole or been captured by savages. Or killed by wild beasts, said Drinian. And a good riddance if he has, I say, muttered Rince. Master Rince, said Reepicheep, you never spoke a word that became you less. The creature is no friend of mine, but he is of the queen's blood, and while he is one of our fellowship, it concerns our honor to find him and to avenge him if he is dead. Of course we've got to find him if we can, said Caspian wearily. That's the nuisance of it. It means a search party and endless trouble. Bother Eustace. Meanwhile, Eustace slept and slept and slept. What woke him was a pain in his arm. The moon was shining in at the mouth of the cave, and the bed of treasures seemed to have grown much more comfortable. In fact, he could hardly feel it all. He was puzzled by the pain in his arm at first, but presently it occurred to him that the bracelet which he had shoved up above his elbow had become strangely tight. His arm must have swollen while he was asleep. It was his left arm. He moved his right arm in order to feel his left, but stopped before he had moved it an inch and bit his lip in terror. For just in front of him, and a little on his right, where the moonlight fell clear on the floor of the cave, he saw a hideous shape moving. He knew that shape. It was a dragon's claw. It had moved as he moved his hand and became still when he stopped moving his hand. Oh, what a fool I've been, thought Eustace. Of course the brute had a mate and it's lying beside me. For several minutes he did not dare move a muscle. He saw two thin columns of smoke going up before his eyes, black against the moonlight, just as there had been smoke coming from the other dragon's nose before it died. This was so alarming that he held his breath. The two columns of smoke vanished. When he could hold his breath no longer, he let it out stealthily. Instantly, two jets of smoke appeared again. But even yet, he had no idea of the truth. Presently, he decided that he would edge very cautiously to his left and try to creep out of the cave. Perhaps the creature was asleep. 
and anyway, it was his only chance. But of course, before he edged to the left, he looked to the left. Oh, horror. There was a dragon's claw on that side, too. No one will blame Eustace if, at this moment, he shed tears. He was surprised at the size of his own tears as he saw them splashing on the treasure in front of him. They also seemed strangely hot. Steam went up from them. But there was no good crying. He must try to crawl out from between the two dragons. He began extending his right arm. The dragon's four-legged claw on his right went through exactly the same motion. Then he thought he would try his left. The dragon limb on that side moved too. Two dragons, one on each side, mimicking whatever he did. His nerve broke, and he simply made a bolt for it. There was such a clatter and rasping and clinking of gold and grinding of stones as he rushed out of the cave that he thought they were both following him. He daren't look back. He rushed to the pool. The twisted shape of the dead dragon lying in the moonlight would have been enough to frighten anyone, but now he hardly noticed it. His idea was to get into the water. But just as he reached the edge of the pool, two things happened. First of all, it came over him like a thunderclap that he had been running on all fours. And why on earth had he been doing that? And secondly, as he bent towards the water, he thought for a second that yet another dragon was staring up at him out of the pool. But in an instant, he realized the truth. That dragon face in the pool was his own reflection. There was no doubt of it. It moved as he moved. It opened and shut its mouth as he opened and shut his. He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep. Sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. In this episode of the King's Hall podcast, we'll aim to help you avoid the error of Harold Scrub and tell your children the right stories so they'll know what to do when they come across dragons. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. Brian, what a banger of an introduction and a cold open telling the right stories. One of the stories that uh, I think is right is that you are French-Canadian. Okay, here here we go. I just told Eric yesterday that when Eric opens a podcast, it's it's usually an insult to both of us. Like, here's the gay Frenchman and his fat Viking friend, Daniel Burkholder. Nobody's called me fat recently, except myself. (laughs) And I said, instead of that... The next episode, I want a montage like the one that's been going around Twitter for King Theoden, where it's just like epic moments from my life to introduce me. The sweet Could you do that next time? Yeah, I'm going to work on that one. Okay. Uh, we also have- It Dan- would be short. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it would be short. Brian, me hardest hit. <laughs> me hardest hit. Uh, we also have Mr. Dan Burkholder, who, like the cold open, like Eustace, Dan was thinking about the tax-free- measure of that I gold. Was. I was. That'd so, be one of the first things I'd, I'd think if I found a hoard of treasure is how can I avoid paying taxes? <laughs> Overpaying yeah. taxes. Overpaying taxes. Overpaying. Overpaying. Right, yeah. of course. Taxation is theft. It's not tax fraud. <laughs> it's it's tax planning. That's yes. right. Right. Wise man plans his steps, you know? Come on. That's right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, gentlemen, a, a few things as we begin. I was thinking, Brian, as you read that, of uh, the G.K. Chesterton quote, Mm, uh, yeah. Where he said, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. So right from the start, uh, it's really important where we locate ourselves in these stories. Uh, we'll unpack in this episode why stories are so important. But before we do that, a little teaser for upcoming episodes of the King's Hall podcast. Oh, excellent. We, we, Brian, we have a special guest that yeah, we're we going to be interviewing. It's, it's not me, so hold your applause till later. I Dan. thought it was going to be you. It's actually we're not. interviewing the Eric Khan. Actually, the Eric Khan would probably be the guy who's in prison. He's he is for multi billion dollar fraud. Yeah, he's the he has the in front of his name. No, we have an exciting guest. Dan, do you have any any thoughts as to who it is? He, he literally knows. knows. He, he literally, <laughs> I know. literally on the notes in front of us. It is. Yeah, it's it's right there. We will be interviewing. Ladies and gentlemen, Donald Trump. No, no, no that now would be everybody's dis- Dang it! I'm sorry, Dan. Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron. Yeah, Kirk Cameron. Who's post mill? You guys coming on? Maybe the, you didn't know that. Coming on the King's Hall podcast, we're going to be interviewing Kirk Cameron. Of course, we've had Kevin Sorbo on the Hard Men podcast. 
Kirk and Kevin, both in some Left Behind movies. The only person that we have left to interview is Nicolas Cage. Oh, and what a what a dream that would be. Oh, man. If we get Nick, you got, like, guys, tweet at him. I don't know what we'd interview about. It would be completely irrelevant to the entire thesis of the King's Hall podcast, except maybe everything would be on air. There's something there. Everything would be a pun joke. So I'd be like, Nicholas, do you think Christendom was gone in 60 seconds? Should Chris, like if we want to retake Christendom, should we steal the Magna Carta? We definitely should. (laughs) We should. So Eric, I just want to get your take on this. Yeah. So when we were approached by Kirk's people, he said that he wanted to be on Brian's podcast, The King's Hall. The accurate. Well, yeah, that's let's, accurate. Let's, yes. He's just, Kirk Kirk doesn't lie. He's a wholesome guy. He just tells it, it, was actually, it like it is. It was actually the PR people. It's probably At Kirk's they, direction. They probably went on Instagram and saw uh, all the lady music that Brian makes. Oh, okay. And thought, wow, this guy must be. Well, you know. <laughs> I leave those sorts of comments <laughs> private. You know, all I can say, Eric, is that. I actually just you wish you wish that you could make lady I, music. I did actually want to uh, plug as we're starting. Brian, you really Brian's threw lady. him off his you, game. Yeah, there. You, you really didn't know what to say. You really I can't believe you just said it. that. Yeah, wow, That's, that hurts. <laughs> what that a jerk! Really, that that uh, cut cut deep. Friendships, uh, Brian. You have a new album. Yes, I do, Eric. Imagine dragons on your heart songs. That is and actually not the title of it, but <laughs> <laughs> close. But, but, but for our listeners, maybe somebody missed this, but we somebody actually made a really great uh, Twitter video. I saw it on Twitter uh-huh. of them placing the uh, Even Dragons album, a different album. <laughs> oh, boy. Could you explain The this? vinyl. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it was. I'm sorry, uh, whoever you were. But genius. It was genius. They unboxed their Even Dragons vinyl that they had gotten in the mail, finally sent it to them. Sorry, guys. And they put it on their turntable, like set the whole thing up hit play and it was playing an Imagine Dragons song. Oh. And it I, I was like how much money did you pay Eric to do this? <sighs> and I knew I kind of suspected I kind of suspected I it, the setup was so long that I thought this isn't going to be my album. What's it going to be? We all know what it's going to be. Imagine Dragons. I thought it was going to be radioactive but it was something different. I don't know. That's the only Imagine Dragons song I really know. Yeah, it was, it was the, a rendition of the joke, as Brian. It was. To it, it. it was really funny. I I got to give props. It was the best one so far. Sorry, Eric. Someone else has made your joke. I know the best. Uh, so, Brian, we have a new new album. Yeah, and Heart Songs. And one of the things I think that um, you had tweeted about this, but I think it was really it ties into our season. Uh, people think patriarchy, and they're like, you know, you're abusive and tyrannical to your people. And they must have been shocked when you release an album which is celebrating your people. Yeah. Um, the greatest song on the album, this is not like up for debate, uh, is actually Winnie's song. <laughs> and also the greatest uh, song ever written. Is Winnie's song. Is Winnie's song, uh, which I was working out the other day, uh, which I like to tell Dan as often as I can. <laughs> I was deadlifting almost 380 pounds. Okay, there I was. Right. There I was. There I was. And I'm like tearing up <laughs> because the, oh. the one line where Brian says I, something like, I know there will be many years, Winifred, we can use their full name. Yeah. When I will not be, but will you listen to the song and think of me? And I was like, I got to get 380. I got to pull 380. You can picture Eric's playlist. It goes directly from like Taylor Swift's Trouble. And then the very next song is that one. And he was just bopping to the... I was bopping. Knew you were trouble when you walked in, and then that comes on, and it's just tears. And I then, mean, he was crying over the Taylor song, too, but then, you know, you for know different really reasons. Funny. So the last album, you know, Imagine Dragons, right? Yep. This album, I think of Taylor Swift. Oh, because no. it's like her shared experiences. Oh, oh, it's her love song. Man, you guys. It's the Taylor Swift album. I don't know if I can show my face again after this episode <laughs> of King's All Lady songs that are like what Taylor I love Swift. is what I love is I I Hurts. literally put in the notes like plug Brian's album. Yeah, plug Brian's album. And, and then this is what's happened. It's just a roast fest. Uh, but I do I do encourage people on Winnie's song. Well, yeah. you can do this with several of them, but Winnie's song in particular. If you go I didn't even know this, but Brian said go on you can go on Spotify and see part of the video, but there's actually a lyric video, yeah, um, which is hilarious. I think Winnie has a little cameo where she's throwing something in the fire. Yeah, I I went and like spent several days attempting to just get enough B roll of Daphne and Winnie to make lyric videos with them in it, and it, it's hilarious trying to film a little girl do anything because they're just like, 
oh, I'm going to go over there. Now I'm going to go over there. And then they like make hilarious, like ridiculous faces as soon as there's a camera. But yeah, Winnie's in that one sitting on a little wooden chair in the chicken run and the chickens are all around and she, it starts with a little clip where I keep the sound up and she's like, I throw that into fire. <laughs> I throw that into fire. <laughs> and then she's doing these little like twirly movements with her. It's just, it's the she's, best. she's so, like it's almost unethical how cute Winnie is. I think it is. I, I she, like we might need to take legal action. I actually believed mostly in original sin. And then Winnie, <laughs> I still believe in it, Dan. So everybody These just are the calm jokes down. Sarah makes so, and everyone's like, calm are you a down, calm down. <laughs> but I was like, yeah, I need to revisit the doctrine. Winnie's, Winnie's too cute. I can right. confirm those. She does sin. She yeah, does. She does. I've actually seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes bad. So <laughs> sometimes bad. She needs the Lord. She yeah, needs the Lord. She does, but she's dang cute. The Lord made her dang cute. As a huge proponent of the carnivore diet, I quickly learned how great eggs are for you especially when you slonk them 8 to 12 at a time. But whether you drink them raw or scramble them with some sausage, they're good for your heart and mind, and they help you build a ton of muscle pretty quickly. My preferred source for eggs is from my own backyard, and I've loved getting my birds from Ideal Poultry. Ideal Poultry is the number one backyard poultry supplier in the country, and they're also wonderful people. Ideal is owned and operated by a solid Christian family who is worthy of your patronage, if you are looking for some fantastic birds. So visit Ideal Poultry today at idealpoultry.com. Again, that's idealpoultry.com. You can also check the link in the show notes. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck De Laterante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street and Avoid the Coming Banking Meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. So speaking of dang cute, uh, Dan Burkholder, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we just almost <laughs> spit my water out onto my laptop. I mean, as soon as you said it, I was like, wow, he this knew. is going to be a... Knew. Guys, we always at the at the King's Hall, we were like from the very beginning, guys, let's not not too much banter. Let's make sure we get right to the point. Really respect our listeners time here. We're at like minute 45 still going on. Here. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been quiet. Yeah, it's not Dan. Yes. Dan's not the problem, Eric. It's Dan's been over there looking us. cute. Uh, Dan, speaking of looking cute, one of the things that you are, uh, you know, we're talking about our, our children. Uh, we're talking about stories. Uh, we talk a lot about the stories that we tell our children. So part of loving your family, I know you've you've said like your boys really love St. George mm -hmm. and the dragon. Give me like the elevator pitch for why stories, it's not a throwaway issue, but why is it so important in the culture of a home that a father is setting? Because you could be the guy like Eustace where you're like, all you need to know is taxes and drains and all these practical things. And here we are, some might say, wasting time telling these stories about dragons. Yeah. Why is that so important? Yeah, well, actually, the the story of Eustace, I think, is a really good picture of what happens if you don't tell the right stories. Because there's a couple of layers to it. But the first thing is that storytelling actually makes a people. Mm. It's really important in the uh, in the life of a, of an image bearer that we absorb stories because God is unfolding this cosmic story. He is the ultimate storyteller. And he commands uh, his people to tell stories, which we'll get into like in Deuteronomy 6 and with ancient monuments and things like that. But if you look specifically at the Eustace story, and then let's just say it's a parable for uh, the types of, of stories that you tell your children, what they're in danger of. Well, really what you see is that the silly stories – you know, the fables, the fairy stories, 
they have some elements in them that are really important for shaping human beings, for shaping image bearers. And really what it is, is you're shaping them to have a good nose. Like Mm -hmm. they could pass a sniff test, right? So in, in those stories, in these stories, a lot of moderns despise uh, fairy stories and fables because there's such obvious good and such obvious evil. There's not the troubled protagonist, you know, and the the evil villain that's actually pretty good guy, you know. Uh, there's not the blending. It's so clunky, you know. Mm-hmm. And but what what happens is that you have children that they know what a dragon is, and they know that dragon gold is something you shouldn't touch, and that dragons are actually bad guys. Mm. And so with the story of Eustace, you see a. A boy that has been told all the wrong stories, but what ends up happening is is just like children that are told the wrong stories in real life. It's not that they despise stories. They just consume the wrong ones yeah. and become dragons themselves because all of life you're being catechized. That's one of the primary ends of entertainment is actually uh, – Brian wrote a, a tremendous article on this some years ago about the, the catechism of Netflix. Yeah. You're, you're being catechized. You're being told this is good and this is bad. This is moral, you know, and this is just, and this is unjust. And you're being yeah. told these stories over and over and over. Yeah. And it actually begins to form you into that type of image. And so those types of stories are really, really important. Even the fairy stories, even the silly stories, because it actually forms an entire human being. Yeah. And so your children could become a dragon if you're not careful. Like, what is the chief end of man? Well, Netflix will teach me it is to enjoy myself, to, to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. <laughs> like that, that, that's well, pretty much what it's trying to get you to believe. It's so interesting, Dan, to, to your point. And Brian, I want to ask you this question. The, the way that stories shape loves. So I was thinking of something Plato says in The Republic, that if you really want to shape a people, he said one of the primary ways you do it is as children, you have to teach them stories. Now, this this kind of seems like, wow, that's that's an interesting comment. But certainly, Brian, stories shape loves as well as – it's not just information, right, that, that our children need. So I guess how have you seen that, that stories are shaping loves within the home and, and what you share as a father? Yeah, this is – I mean, this is the key thing when you're actually talking about discipling your children is that the information is critical – the truths are critical, the frameworks are critical, the systematic is critical, but it's critical with the goal of their hearts loving it. If they just know it, that's not enough. If they can just regurgitate it, it's not enough. So you have to actually win the hearts of your children. And one of the things that stories do is they encode truth in a way that is far more potent. Like I think you can learn provided that you you do have the framework theologically of truth to filter and sift, story is one of the most powerful ways to actually learn about the world that God made and the God who made the world and about redemption. Was it Lewis who said that the stories are how you get past the watchful dragons? I, actually, it's funny you say that. I literally – I have that quote pulled up here where it's his essay, Sometimes Fairy Stories um, May Say Best What's to Be Said. And I'll read it here actually. I think it's good. So he said, some people seem to think that I began by asking myself how I could say something about Christianity to children. He's specifically referring to the Chronicles of Narnia, which we pulled from in the cold open. He says, then fixed on the fairy story as an instrument, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for, then drew up a list of basic Christian truths and hammered out allegories to embody them. This is pure moonshine. I couldn't (laughs) write it in that way at all. Everything began with images, a fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first, there wasn't even anything Christian about them. That element pushed itself in of its own accord. It was part of the bubbling. Then came the form, and that's capital F form. As these images sorted themselves into events, i.e. became a story, they seemed to demand no love interest and no close psychology. But the form which excludes these things is the fairy tale. And the moment I thought... Of that, I fell in love with the form itself, its brevity, its severe restraints on description, its flexible traditionalism, its inflexible hostility to all analysis, digression, reflections, and, quote, gas. I was no enamored of it. Its very limitations of vocabulary became an attraction, as the hardness of the stone pleases the sculptor or the difficulty of the sonnet delights the sonneteer. On that side, as author, I wrote fairy tales because fairy stories seemed the ideal form for the stuff I had to say. 
Then, of course, the man in me began to have its turn. I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings, and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past these watchful dragons? I thought one could. End quote. Mm. I love that whole train of thought from Lewis explaining, like, this is how our minds actually work is that we often don't start with propositions and then reason our way down to action. It's something deeper. It's it's something more whole-souled for most of us, where we act out of a combination of our whole self and all of the influences in our mind and, 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 and images, and, and the stories are what shape us. And so then from those stories, Lewis realized that he could actually – teach Christian theology and teach a love for Christ and a, and a real like full souled awareness of the glory of Christ's crucifixion, for example. It's interesting. Through story. And I, I just have to say for myself that reading Narnia, which I read almost, I, not almost, I read Narnia every single year at least once. And part of the reason is because it's one of those things that keeps the glory and the truth of the resurrection and of Christ's redemption and of his love for the world and, the, and, and just the, the, the beauty of creation and how God interacts with it and our hope for the kingdom of God. Like all of those things are there in Narnia in ways that sneak past the watchful dragons of systematic theology. And then they flow back into the systematic and they help you love the systematic the right way. So, so I think this is actually one of the most important jobs a father has is to make sure that his children have the right stories shaping their loves. What's really interesting as you're describing that, I was thinking, I think it was Glenn Sunshine in our conversation, which will be available in season three for After Hours. Uh, that'll be an exclusive. But one of the really interesting comments he made about the Reformation is that the Reformers were somewhat guilty of importing a pure rationalism into Christianity. They were trying to correct Rome's errors Part of what we got was everything is thought of as systematics, propositional truth, all important things. But it can kind of, at points, I think, dull the sense of story and love. Yeah. You know, I think even recently we'll have Joe Rigney on uh, in the After Hours exclusive as well. And Joe's going to talk to us about Narnia and why those stories are so potent and powerful. But but it really – like what you're saying is we're not just purely rational creatures no. – that like digest the information like a phone book and then now we're good. Right. We're and, not. And I think, Dan, I, I want to ask you pastorally, we've seen this so much with with our men and our people. You said early on when I when I came here, it's not just getting truth across to people. We're trying to win their hearts. And story is a powerful way, is it not, to do that? Yeah, absolutely. What one of the examples that I, I think of when I'm when I'm going through this exercise is, is actually you're, if you're trying to communicate a truth, right? For example, uh, if you were telling you know somebody in the congregation or your children, like, "Hey, you shouldn't you shouldn't commit this egregious sin because you will feel really guilty about it, and you will be racked with guilt, and your life will be hell." But there is repentance on the other side. You know, if that's that's what you say, like, okay, that's a bit of data. And then uh, Dostoevsky tells Crime and Punishment, yeah, mm. and that goes through the hell of murder oh. and the guilt of the conscience. Yeah. You know, and and how it just hounds you relentlessly. You feel ha haunted yourself it's, as you read it. Yes. Yes. And it gives you this this, you know, shaping. Your heart is being won to an idea like that is horror. Like that is horrible. I don't ever want to do anything like that. But there's still even hope. You know, so that, that, that's, he could have just, Dostoevsky could have saved himself bad. a lot of time. Like, yeah, yeah murder's bad. Hey, You'll mur feel real bad about feel it. Guilty. And then he shows you Raskonikov and he's like, get into his soul. Yes. And feel the bleakness of 
where you, the, the walls are closing in and there's no joy or light anywhere until and actually crime and punishment until real justice starts to break in and i mean better justice would have been capital but whatever you know capital, <laughs> capital punishment <laughs> well but, you, you often find yeah. That, yeah like with the story mm-hmm. you can feel it yeah and, yeah so one of the most effective uh i think the secret sauce of this whole culture that we're building that god is building in the church has a lot to do with post-millennialism mm-hmm. and the story of hope. Yeah. And so when I'm, when I have an outsider come in and it's like, Hey, what's going on here? Uh, why are you guys the way you are? It seems like people are pretty excited. I noticed you got a lot of young kids. You got a lot of business owners, like what in the world is going on? And you start sharing the idea like, Oh no, we actually win down here. Let me tell you how that actually works. You know, the Bible says that uh, the glory of God will, cover the entire world like water is wet, like, mm-hmm. the you know, the waters cover the sea, you know, and, and start going through a lot of this post-millennial hope and saying, like, the gospel is effective for salvation. And you can have hopes for generations, thousand generations, mm-hmm. you know, that your people will be blessed. And so we need to put our hands to the plow. And, and you can just see it in the, in the eyes of the men here when they're like, wait a minute, there's there's actually hope like the rapture isn't coming tomorrow or something like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to dunk on anyone specifically, but, but when you share the story of hope and you share the story of the gospel and of the whole narrative of scripture in, in a way that's applicable to the life of a man Mm -hmm. or the life of a child or a woman, you're actually winning their heart to a vision and an idea and an ideal and a virtue. And they have something to strive towards. And story does that in the best way. Yeah. You could read a systematic on, well, this is what the post-millennialist, you know, eschatology believes. Yeah. And you'd have the data points, but it's, it's so much more than that. Just yeah. like you could, you could, uh, you could take systematic, uh, of the, of the entire scriptures and you have all of the theological data points. Mm-hmm. But if you don't read it, yeah. if you don't read the narrative of the entire story of God's people from beginning to end, you're missing out. God tells stories yeah. because it wins people. And he's and, and he's a storyteller. And this history he is a story. Yes, that's what you live in. You're a you're a bit character in God's story. That's what you are. You you are an, an actual living, breathing, three dimensional character with a heartbeat that God is speaking. Right. So that's another reason why you see the image of God in man in that chimpanzees don't get together and tell stories around the campfire. They also don't like campfires, but you know they, they don't do that. They don't, uh, you know, you're never going to find a colony of porpoises that are really, you know, promoting their their newest uh, teen fantasy series that they wrote. Like, it just <laughs> it just won't happen. But people relentlessly do. It's interesting. And they do it even when they do it really poorly. Like, even Twilight. I mean, it's dumb, but it's it, – the, the pagans do this too. It's, it's inescapable as a human being. And one of the things – I think is important that we we could maybe put a pin in this and talk about it later, but I think it'd be important to give a couple examples of the type of stories that you'd want to shape your daughters and your sons. You guys think about that? Could we do that? Oh, all yeah. the time. Dude, okay, I've yes. got one, and then I'll pitch yeah, to you yeah. guys. So one of them that I always recommend is that I think, I think everybody, but I think particularly young women, that girls coming into their teens should read Pride and Prejudice. Um, and one of the reasons is because our day so uh, disciples ladies to believe that fundamentally they are not sin- sinners and that typically the problem is the patriarchy and it's everybody else out there. It basically teaches them that most of, again, we've talked about this before, but your biggest problem is that you don't have enough self-esteem and think more highly of yourself. But then you have this wonderful character in Pride and Prejudice, Elizabeth, who is a wonderful lady. She's smart. She's vivacious. She's witty. Uh, she's beautiful. Uh, she's and also she's a huge sinner, and she almost ruins everything. It is interesting too because a lot of the Hollywood versions of Pride and Prejudice, I had watched them and never mm-hmm. read the book. And I would hear other people, Doug Wilson, say Pride and Prejudice, one of the greatest yeah. books of all time. And I was like, no, it's a sappy Hollywood romance and blah blah blah. Then I read the book, and it was really amazing because at the end. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth genuinely and very Christianly repents, repents to a man, to a man and says, I have wronged you. I've sinned, sinned against you. you. And she's ashamed of it. And and then their relationship really, I think, begins through that repentance mutual. Yeah. She, she has 
set before it's such a good story for girls because set before are two types of men, like two archetypal men. One of them is truly a good man. His character is phenomenal. But like, he's not flashy. But he's not flashy. He is he has his own faults and sins. It's not like it's not a novel about where men are sinless and women are sinful either. He sins too. But his true character is that he is a godly Christian man. And then there's this other man who is flashy and handsome and outgoing and like all these he's extroverted and he seems a lot better. But he ends up being evil. Like he is a wicked, foolish man that you would never in a million years want your daughter to marry. And so part of the story is this woman, protagonist, learning how to tell the difference between the foolish man and the godly man. And then in the process, also learning about her own sinful temptations and foolishness and being rebuked and chastened and repenting and restored. And so to me, that's an example there. It's not all Lord of the Rings like that too, but there's an example there of that's a story that I want to shape the thinking of my daughters, my sons too, but particularly of my daughters. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Dan, stories that come to mind that you want to shape your sons, maybe like Spot the Dog. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm just he kidding. just mentions Dostoyevsky, <laughs> which is like 800 pages of dense Russian prose, and then we, we get a Spot the Dog. Yeah, Spot the Dog so was so great, though. I love that. I mean, not great for shaping. It's like Good Night Moon. Yeah, yeah uh, I think so. Entry-level books, I'm trying to think about something that my boys can understand now. Uh-huh. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Little Britches series. Oh, yeah. Unfortunate mm. name, but... Ralph Moody. Yeah, Ralph Moody. That's it. Yeah. I mean, for boys, it's it's pretty gritty, and the virtue that's on display is fantastic. Uh, you have a few different characters that are really, I think, are, are laudable characters, mm-hmm. you know, to, it's that, sort of like that are put in a good light. Masculine version of Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, yeah, yeah with a is. little bit higher, which is really cool level, right? Yeah, yeah. like slightly but in it, terms of age. I it's mean. historical, yeah. but the thing I loved about it, this was really cool. So it's set in the Green Mountain, outside Denver, Green Mountain and South area, which is where I grew up. Oh, okay. But, so you're Ralph Moody? No, no. <laughs> I, but but it was cool, like reading because he'll give geography and his tales of Denver and going into the big city. And it was like, whoa, it's you know, obviously not like that at all anymore. But even as a dad, when I was reading that to my kids, I was like, there's something about it that's like, yes, this is like very masculine. Yes. A lot of lessons about, you know, like where he's like disobeying his dad and then he learns really, I think, to respect his father a lot more. Absolutely. And you see his father, who's not necessarily like a strong man physically, he actually has some health issues. And he has times when he stands up to other men, times when he fights, time w- times when he's humble. One of the, actually, one of the most profound lines that I'd, I'd read in, in it was that uh, Ralph was saying that he asked a lot of questions of his father. They're, they're driving the buckboard, whatever. And he just kept asking his dad questions, question after question. And he made a comment saying, my dad never complained or got frustrated that I asked mm-hmm. so many questions. And I was like, holy moly. I mean, to me, it was really, yeah, really that's interesting. Really cool. But there's a lot of different lessons that you learn from those books that I think are really good. Some more obvious bad guys and and obviously good guys. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything off the top of your head. Yeah, no, I think that's great. What, I, what comes to mind now is because of, you know, we'll get into this in just a minute, but season three of King's Hall, which we're working on, uh, doing all this reading in the medieval period and early Christendom, uh, but my boys are also in the medieval period in school. And so I they had actually been ahead of me in reading a lot of this material. But it was really interesting because I was asking my sons. That this conversation comes up. And they're talking about what they want to name their children. And, you know, my oldest, he said to me, he said, I think my firstborn I want to name Charlemagne. Oh, so And I was so like, based. okay. I was like, that's that's interesting. So, you know, now obviously we're reading about Charlemagne. I was like, what a king. Um, and then he was like, I think my second born, if I have a second born son, I'm going to name him Roland. And I was so, like, okay. Awesome. And then like, Al, you know, all the names are mm-hmm. like Alfred. And, and even the the female names of that time period are just, you know, amazing. Ethelred and all, you know, all this stuff. But it's really interesting. You start seeing that and they're reading these stories and you see how it shapes their loves and what they're trying to aim at with their lives um, that we can share together. 
Um, so that's what it's been a lot lately. It's just a lot of these medieval fables, knights, I think really help solidify, you know, as a man, what are you aiming your life at? Particularly as we talk about Christendom. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is, uh, you know, as you think about these stories, like stories that shaped you uh, when you were a, a young man. Mm, yeah. Um, I can remember even reading like Summer of the Monkeys was one. It was like mm-hmm. Wilson Rawls, I think. He also wrote Where the Red Fern Grows. Yeah, I was going to say Where the Red Fern Grows is for um, sure. But it was like little boys and adventure and, and uh, having good hound dogs and stuff like that. They yeah. really just – I don't know what it did. It just fired up the imagination, which was really powerful. As I got older, some of the stories – I think one of the most pivotal was Gates of Fire, Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. You know, Thermopylae, uh, this, the story of the 300 – he gives you a picture of kind of like this valiant image of Western civilization and, and what it would mean to be a great man, even if you were flawed. You know, there's nothing quite like a great cup of coffee in the morning. Here at New Kristen and Press, we've really been enjoying coffee from our friends at Squirrely Joe's Coffee, a family-owned coffee company from Illinois. Joe and his wife, Rachel, put a ton of effort into quality roasted beans and wholeheartedly support us in our vision to bring all of Christ to all of life. Yes, even to that cup of coffee that's in your hands. You can order your first batch of coffee from Squirrely Joe's by going to squirrelyjoes.com or by clicking the link in the show notes below. First-time customers will receive 20% off their first order, so be sure to head to their website. Again, that's Squirrely Joe's at squirrelyjoes.com. Let them help you in your mission while you help them in theirs. Caffeinating the Modern Reformation. Red meat is a staple of a healthy, protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef, and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Uh, any other books that you guys can think of, though, from youth that shaped you? We've talked about Tolkien. Yeah. A, a lot of books. So the, Where the Red Fern Grows was very uh, big. It was one of those books that, as a young lad, definitely I came back to again. Books that I came back to over and over and over again that I think in general called a boy to – first of all, there are stories that understand what it is to be a boy, mm. like uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Th- those are books that understand – Twain understood what it was to be a young man because he, as a teenager, like ran away and became a steamboat captain on the Mississippi River, basically. Like, I mean, that was his his thing. So he understood this adventurous spirit in boyhood and the humor and the like the – the the love and all all of it was there. The justice, the fighting. Like I also think of a book like Swiss Family Robinson, which is to our ear super didactic. In it's like there's a lot of moralizing in the book, where the Puritan father is like every five minutes, like now children, let us kneel down and praise the Lord and Thanksgiving for delivering us from this wildebeest that came out, and you know. So there's an element where it's it's like not the most realistic book, but what I love about it is that it just so straightforwardly presented this godly family piety with a strong Christian father and boys who sin and then are corrected by their fathers and submit to him. Like over and over in the book, that happens. That book comes to mind. What? what, what I mean, I don't want to say it, but Lord of the Rings and Narnia are obviously everyone's show. Yeah, yeah Lord of the Rings was very influential for me when mm-hmm. I was younger. My dad read it to us. 
when I was a kid. The other books that I was attracted to, and honestly, I don't even remember what they're about necessarily, but it was the Redwall series by Brian Jocks. Yep. Mm. I remember I, I just ate those up. Yeah. Absolutely loved them. So I just give the caveat that I don't remember any of the story because yeah. I don't remember if they're good or not. But and, I remember loving them. And like Green Ember or Wing Feather Saga, the S.D. Smith or the um, Andrew, I can't remember who Wing Feather is. They're more modern stories that are kind of in a similar vein as Redwall. Mm, mm-hmm. The Redwall stories are like for that age, um, adventure stories like anthropomorphic animals kind of thing. Right. But, but intended to again, demonstrate, we're talking about stories that demonstrate truth as true, uh, evil as evil, Mm -hmm. and that the world is embattled, hard things are going to happen to you, you're going to be kicked down, you got to get back up, be a man, be a woman, those kinds of things. Like The world is not just stuff. The world is not just stuff. So true. All of it. So absolutely true. Couldn't have said it better myself, Eric. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, Brian, I I do want to ask you just on the sort of biblical theology and, you know, as you look at scripture— one of the things that we were talking about before uh, as we were preparing for this episode that's interesting is so much of like Deuteronomy 6 and as the people are in the wilderness and, and going back into – or going into the promised land and looking back, God is telling them repeatedly and Moses tells them repeatedly, tell your sons the stories of what God's done. Yes. Um, one of the things that that I hope for is that we transmit is exactly that. Look at what God has done in Ogden, in our yeah, own lives. In our lives. Look at what the Lord has done. And, and even keeping records of those things yeah. for future generations. Uh, but just talk to me a little bit about some of the theology behind this of, you know, biblically why God says stories are important for that generational work. Yeah, because people are forgetful. Mm. And even, so it, think about this. If the wilderness generation, if Psalm 95 if they can forget God who saw the miracles and who saw God deliver them, how much easier is it going to be for the children who didn't see them to forget and to fail to transmit the wonderful works of God and the wondrous deeds of God on their behalf? So you have to have stories that capture powerfully the truth and the ugliness and the beauty and the redemption so that your kids, in a sense, can live the stories again. They can live alongside you what the Lord brought you through. Mm. So I think that's true in your own life, but how much more of teaching our kids how to understand the scriptures themselves, not as a story, or I mean, sorry, not as just a, a collection of random historical works that, you know, they've got some moral things that you should learn. Here's a couple, like the moral of the story is be it, be a good boy, Johnny. Well, no, the moral of the story is Christ throws down the Leviathan and he wins his bride, and you're a part of this story, and so go and follow him into battle. Like, teach your kids to read the Bible that way, and then learn how to read their own family story, church story, their own life story through that lens, because you'll know what to do then when you come upon hardship, and you're like, this happens to us all the time. Hard thing in the church, or hard thing in, in our lives, and it's like, Okay, guys, how are we going to lead through this as pastors? Okay, well, what would what would the hero of the story do? Well, he wouldn't be a giant um, pansy. Pansy. He would be courageous, and he would go and he would say full send. Full and sense. so we're going to full send. Well, even even as we were talking about things like Lord of the Rings recently, our very own deacon Ben Garrett uh, was filling us in on this like mix. I guess it's a mix of, uh, the life of Thad and like a super cut of Thad. Yeah. Super cut. But like you watch that and then, okay, we have hard things to deal with pastorally. And I say to myself, go be a King. Like there's hard things and it is inspirational. It kind of gives you the jet fuel to go deal with that. Mm -hmm. Dan, it looked like you were going to, yeah, no, I was going to riff off of what Brian had said. One of the exercises that I've been doing with my boys, uh, because they're younger, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, I can deadlift them. They're quite small, though. Yeah, they're very. It small. wouldn't be the numbers that you're putting up. Mm, no, is that I would read a passage of scripture, you know, for family worship at at night, and they're all kind of like their eyes are glazed over. I mean, they're like two, three, six. You know, like they're really little, and I, I still do that. But one of the things that I started to do, and I could see their eyes light up, is I'll quickly like read over a, a, like David and Goliath, for example myself. And then I tell them the story. 
Yeah. And they absolutely love it. Yeah. And what it allows me to do is to is to say like, boys, you're going to have giants that come against you. And so your call is to be like David. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's lots of different applications. Cue yeah. the you're not yeah, David. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I, I should have picked <laughs> a different example. David. <laughs> yeah. But, you're but David. the point is but that- But you're David, guys. I'm using a true story. Yeah. And I'm telling them the story. And I'm telling it to them in a way that they'll understand with the hopes of winning their heart. And then I'm hoping that we'll see what happens. One day they'll be reading through, you know, First Samuel or whatever book it's in, and they'll get to David and Goliath and they'll go, I remember this story. Yeah, I remember. I love this story. Yes. You know, and I'm supposed to be like David. I'm supposed to be courageous. Yeah. And and the thing is, culture in the world is going to continually try to tell them other false stories that are that are intended and reverse engineered by the world of flesh and the devil to strip away all of the glory and wonder and all of the divine and all of the transcendence and all of the meaning. It, it reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite books, which is Notes from a Tilt-A-Whirl by Andy Wilson. And he, uh, he, he said this, Marx called religion an opiate, and all too often it is, but philosophy is an anesthetic, a shot to keep the wonder away. It is easy to be numb to the world's marvels when you've missed lunch and the light is red. To an infinite artist, a creator in love with his craft, there is no unimportant corner. There is no thrown away image, no tattered thread in the novel left untied. There is a crushing joy that crackles in every corner of this world. I am tiny and yet I am here. I have been given senses, awareness, existence, and placed on a stage so crowded with the vast, so teeming with the tiny, that I can do nothing but laugh and sometimes laugh and cry. Living makes dying worth it. The whole ethos of that book is one that I think really captures what we're talking about, is teaching our children and really believing ourselves is where it starts, that we are actually in that kind of story ourselves. And so that when they read this, the tales of the past, or when they read a good fictional novel, or when they, you know, when they encounter a really good film, they're able to read the correct story, but they're also equipped when the the philosophers show up, or when the atheists show up, or when the, the whatever fool shows up and tells the wrong story and says, oh, it's all meaningless. God is dead. Let me tell you why it doesn't matter. They know what to do, which is laugh. And be like, you're dumb. That is not the story at all well, I think that we're a, in. Yeah, a lot of it is uh, – I was recently reading about the way uh, history and biographies changed in the 20th century particularly. Mm-hmm. So the main goal became disenchanting people with their heroes mm-hmm. and particularly with the West. So it's like now we have to read that the Crusades were evil and everything that our fathers did was bad and all this stuff. And uh, I think part of it, to your point, Brian, is like we're trying to reinstill the wonder yeah. in these things. Uh, this happened for me recently, and I'll share this with you. This was on uh, Twitter, and and we'll transition now into sort of season three in Christendom and kind of what's coming down the pipeline, get everybody excited. Uh, but I, I read this on – it was just an account that I follow. I think it's mainly about like medieval history. But it says this. One of Saladin's emirs said this on the Crusaders. There is something especially amazing about one of them. He threw our people into disorder and destroyed them. We have never seen his like, nor known anyone similar. He was always at the head of the others. In every engagement, he was first and foremost. No one can stand against him. And when he seizes anyone, no one can rescue them from his hands. And they call him, in their language, King Richard. Based. And I read that, and like even as I'm reading it now, like it's like Based. fire in my blood. Like, this is something to aim at. Like, this yes. great king. Yes. And then you also think about it, it's like all these people, like you know, I posted this and people were like, you know, the Christians, used to scrub shows up in your comment feed. Seriously. Uh, and, so and what's funny is Pre-dragon like. Pre-dragon. Yeah. Used to scrub. Oh. Yeah. Pre-dragon. But, yeah. but then all you do is you laugh at them and you say, you know, I basically, I was like, the Crusades were based. Come again. <laughs> like, we're going to celebrate and we're going to build and we're going to do these things and we're not going to give in to the disenchantment. Yeah. Um, so Dan, I guess your perspective as as we move into the talk of season three, why is it so important to look back at these great stories? And and I think for us, this happened in the conversation with Glenn Sunshine. We're like so much of the what we've heard is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We've been disenchanted. We don't even know it. Yeah, that's right. There's been so many lies that have been slowly leaked that we've digested and has become part of our 
our intellect and the way we think and the way we reason and the way we relate to history that we don't even realize it. And, you know, I I think it's, it's so important to know our history, Christian history. We know church history. We know like Reformation history. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that we know early church, first century, you know, sort of history. Mm -hmm. But then there's this whole period of time that we are completely clueless about other than that there were a bunch of uh, dirt munching like cave dwellers that didn't know anything uh, during like 1500 years of human history, (laughs) you know? And it's, it's really ironic because you look at the architecture that they, yeah, and then they also built this. Yeah. It's (laughs) like builders say, we can't actually make that anymore. You know, the great paintings and the, and all of the beautiful art and the music and everything like that, that was produced during this time. And you have to ask the question, well, if these were a bunch of like illiterates, you know, dirt munching, they didn't even have, I mean, antibiotics for goodness sake. Yeah. Like how did they actually do this stuff? Who were, who was the good, who were the good guys? Yeah. Who were the bad guys? Yeah. We don't know any of this. We don't know any of this. And I think it's really important that we recover a lot of this knowledge. Yeah. It's actually been a struggle mm-hmm. as we were talking to Glenn Sunshine. We're like, who should we read on Charlemagne? And he's like, boy. I mean, you could read this guy. There's some stuff you can glean from that, but don't take everything. And this guy, and like, there's just so much unknown, not an NLBL be all resource. And what they tend to do, the way that they, they cut the knees out from the heroes of the past is that they dismiss all of the earlier Christian works of the 19th and the 18th century histories. And they say, that's all hagiography, hey, however pronounce it, hagiography, hey, whatever where they're just making up these like immortal hero worship, hero worship yeah. type of stuff. And so they start to point out flaws in the people like, Oh, well they did this or they made this mistake. And the thing is some of it's not even false because here's the thing. All of your heroes are going to do the wrong thing. Some of the time, have you ever read a book? Like, have you ever read a, an actual good story? The protagonist does wrong things sometimes. Yeah. That's kind of half the story is how he then triumphs and deals with it and becomes a glory. So part of it is for us to be able to even be ready to answer those things and be like, oh, okay, so you're telling me that one time Alfred sinned. And so now I'm supposed to dismiss and dishonor my spiritual forefather, King Alfred. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. And you better say Christ is Lord or I'm going to. That's right. Go Alfred. What shield wall? Wild boar. It's interesting too. (laughs) Shield wall. Because uh, even uh, Ben Merkel in his book uh, will also, Lord willing, we have an interview Mm -hmm. set up with uh, Ben. I think that'll be great. We'll talk about Alfred. But he recounts a story, I think it was at Oxford, when he was studying and then wrote this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, But he says a guy in the library was like, what are you working on? He said, I'm writing on King Alfred. And he goes, oh, that's a myth. He didn't even exist. (laughs) Yeah. And Ben was like, what is wrong with people? Wow. He clearly existed. Next thing you're going to tell me, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. (laughs) You idiot. (laughs) You idiot. (laughs) But I think that's that's the tall task. Um, Dan, we've also talked about, I think, this idea of – rebuilding and, and doing the work obviously requires inspiration. But as we read these stories too, it's amazing to me how much practically actually does apply today. And I'll give one example. I'm sure this will come up again and we'll go into more detail, all that good stuff, but um, shield walls and the shield wall. And, and uh, in Ben Merkel's book, uh, the white horse King, um, he talks about how Alfred was at the front so this is very bloody style of combat. You're like, you have guys with shields and then other guys are reaching above, around, whatever, to stab people in the throat, eyes, whatever. Yeah. Alfred is at the front and they said, well, the thing is, if one man retreats, it will crush the whole troops because everybody will start retreating. Yeah. And most especially the king. And I thought particularly of Denethor. Denethor has this line in Return of the King where he says, the wise ruler always fights from the back. And here you have King Alfred, the wild boar on the battlefield, leading his people, outnumbered, outgunned, and yet he's at the front. It's so important. That's a pretty practical lesson for today's church leadership. Yeah, well, what's really interesting about that is it was actually part of the culture. It wasn't just Alfred was, you know, this this Superman kind of character where yeah. he's like, no, I'm not going to lead from the back. I'm going to lead from the front. It was actually the expectation of the people. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't follow anyone that wouldn't you know, fight in the front. That was the expectation of a leader is that they'd actually lead on the battlefield. And so that also tells you something of the type of people that the Anglo-Saxons were uh, with baseline Christianity. 
uh, in the, the leaders blood. are in the front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the leaders go to the front. And it does tell you something about the church because what kind of background culture do we have to where we actually anticipate that the leaders don't don't get you know dirt under their nails? They don't get bloody. They don't get bloody. No. Uh, and so it it should tell you it, what it helps you to do is it helps you to read your time when you're looking at a different time and you're like uh, examining the heroes and the events and the enemies and all of that. You then turn that lens and look at our time and you go, wait a minute, there's a whole lot of things that have gone out of focus, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, and you can start to trace where that has happened and the cycles that have happened. So many things in my mind are actually being solidified and changed based on reading this period of history of, you know, the first Christendom. I'm very excited to get into it more Yeah, in season three. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, especially with a lot of the talk, um, you know, it's kind of cool to see Christian nationalism, Christian princes. I, I saw a post recently, it said, there, there is no Christian prince. And uh, I was like, oh, I think Charlemagne would like a word. Because this guy was like, I mean, he's leading for 42 years of his reign. He's leading in military exploits. Uh, he's going to mass twice a day. He's building cathedrals. He's like a very pious man and uh, ruling, you know, surrounding himself with God's people, that sort of thing. So uh, really encouraging. Brian, I guess if you would just uh, give us a, a charge and Benny here. A charge and Benny. Well, here's what I would say, guys. I would say, tell your children the right stories so that they don't become used to scrub. But I would also say, because some of the guys are like, I didn't get the right stories. I don't know the right stories. Remember Edmund? Edmund was a traitor, and then he became a king. Remember Eustace. Eustace, Eustace got dragoned because he didn't read the right stories. It's not but, the end of a story. But but Aslan undragoned Eustace, and Eustace became a hero. Eustace, I mean, go read The Silver Chair. Eustace became a real hero of the story. And so even if you haven't done a good job, even if you didn't get the right stories, number one, make sure that you do better for your children. Give them the right stories. But remember that the kind of story that we're talking about is a kind of stories, a kind of story where traitors can become kings and where, be, where, where dragonish enemies and losers can become undragoned by the king. And so follow the Lord, um, take heart, don't be discouraged, don't be downcast. You're in a story where the king wins and you're on his side, and so he's on your side. So thanks for listening, guys. We hope this has been a helpful episode of the King's Hall. Be sure to check us out on Patreon. We've got all sorts of bonus content there uh, if you like what we're doing and want to support the show. But until next time, Festin Alente, make haste slowly. We'll see you next time in the King's Hall. Thank you.